during that first wave of the pandemic, there'd been a lockdown in the community and there was a lockdown in prisons. And so it felt like everyone was in the same boat. So people felt that they were, there was something much bigger than the prison. Uh, and they almost felt like we were all in something together. But then as there was a, you know, things started to be unlocked in the community during that summer and people weren't seeing a rapid return to full regimes in prisons, um, then people started to feel differently about it. And you can understand that. And of course, there was a lot of work to try to explain about the vulnerabilities, the potential for explosive outbreaks, their health risks, uh, which meant that it had to go more slowly. And of course, people could understand that to a degree and, and I think lived with it. Then we had the, the next lockdown in the winter of 2020-21. And then in the next summer, as things started to improve in the community, and again, it was sort of slow in prisons. And, and by that point, I think people were starting to get, people in prison were often trying to start getting very weary of it and feeling there was a difference between what was happening in the community and in, in prison. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy and this is the Locked Up Living podcast where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast. So welcome, Jamie. Good to see you again. And you know, it's been a very long time since we first met when you were just finishing at the FEMS unit as I was preparing to start there. So really nice to get the chance to speak to you again about reflections on how your career as a, as a whole has gone since then. Thanks for joining us. So you've worked no, in the Thanks for the invite, really appreciate it. So you've worked in the criminal justice sector for over 25 years, Jamie. What, what attracted you to working in, in the criminal justice world? So it's worth just saying a bit about my background. So I was um, I was brought up by a teenage single mother in a council estate. So um, and I didn't really know anyone who'd been to university or anything like that. But I I, I think I realised from quite a young age that education was going to be a route for me to change my life. But um, because I hadn't really been exposed to people who'd gone on to university and other careers I, I didn't really know what that meant or what kind of things I should study or things like that so but I remember one day when it must have been about 11 or 12 and a teacher was trying to motivate us so they went around the classroom and asked everyone what they wanted to do when they were an adult and the girl I liked said she wanted to be a lawyer so I said I did too and um and uh and that's but then that sort of stuck in my mind oh well maybe i'll go and study law because you know maybe you get a job at the end of that and um and uh and also maybe this is something to do with social justice you know it's something to do with right and wrong so so i ended up going to study law but very quickly uh, it became apparent to me that it was pretty much a production line for commercial lawyers and um there's nothing wrong with being a commercial lawyer if that's what you want to be, but it, it wasn't what I wanted to be. And uh, in the second year, um, I took an optional, um, an optional module in uh, basically criminology. So I um, started to learn about prisons and the criminal justice system and became quite, started to become quite interested in this. And 
in the third year, I did a dissertation on women's imprisonment. So I had this kind of growing interest. And I think I discovered that in that there was perhaps more of what I was looking for in terms of a career that had something to do with social justice. So I applied to join the prison service on a fast track scheme and, uh, and joined from there. And that's basically how I got into prisons. Thank you. That's like, yeah, I think when most people think of law, they think of commercial lawyers, don't they? And think of it as being a very lucrative career when obviously there is there are these other lawyers which are very concerned with social justice. Um, but it's interesting to hear that, that that wasn't what grabbed you about about law. And obviously the prison service has benefited from the pull of social justice view. You've worked in a, a really wide variety of prisons, which I'm not, I'm not sure how common that is for governors to to span such a breadth of prisons. I wondered how that had helped you develop as a criminal justice professional, do you think, working in these different areas? I, I, I mean, I have worked in a number of different settings, although I'd say that most of my career has been spent working with men who've been sentenced, sentenced to long prison sentences. So that that's probably what the vast majority of my um, career has been spent doing. Um, and I suppose what what attracted me to working with men who who served long sentences is um, partly I, I I feel that those are people who should be kept separate from society um, because many of them they have well they have all committed very harmful offences and uh, present quite a significant risk. But what I want to do is ensure that um, their rights. Are respected and that they have opportunities to try to change, grow, reduce their risk and potentially even go on to successful life after prison. So I did have, I suppose I, I was driven by those kind of progressive ideals, but it's also about protecting the public. You know, that was part of it as well. I wanted to, it wanted to, I wanted it to feel legitimate to me and meaningful. And uh, that, that seemed like part of the prison estate where really meaningful work could take place. I can really relate to what you're saying there, actually, in terms of, you know, when people talk about abolition, I think that actually there are, are a group of prisoners who, for, you know, for the safety of other people as well as themselves, actually, do need to be kept separate. I suppose I wonder whether the, you know, working with people on short, shorter sentences might pose more of a moral quandary um, to you in terms of working in prisons. So, uh, uh, you know, at times, I think my my approach and some of the things I've said have been misunderstood by people to think that I'm some sort of abolitionist. I mean, I, absolutely, I am not. I can guarantee that that having spent more than 25 years working in the prison system, I've met many, many people who definitely need to be there. Um, but I've also met many people who who, through the work that they've done, are then ready to return to the community. Um, so... Um, so I absolutely recognise the need for imprisonment. Um, I mean, whether, you know, there is a legitimate public policy question about whether prisoners overused, whether there are some people who could be better dealt with in the community rather than in, uh, in prisons. Um, I think they are legitimate questions which are constantly explored in public policy and in academia and other places. Um, the, the people that I've generally, generally worked with, which are people who've committed very serious offences, um, you know, that, that ethical dilemma isn't really there because they are the hard cases. They're the ones where clearly 
um, prison is is needed. Um, so, so yeah, in some ways that makes it more ethically straightforward. Thank you. And you know, in your research, you focused quite heavily on managerialism. Can you explain what you mean by that concept for those listening? Yeah, so managerialism is uh, a dominant approach that's taken in public management. Uh, so the essential aspects or characteristics of managerialism are, first of all, that it encourages the development of larger organizations with hierarchical structures that attempt to monitor and control the behavior of employees through target setting and the use of information technology. The second aspect of it is that uh, of managerial organizations are that they deploy human resource techniques, so recruitment, reward, appraisal, development, communications, to try and shape the ways that employees think about their work and broadly trying to enlist them as corporate citizens. So the, the essential characteristics of managerialism are tighter centralized structures and uh, attempts to re-engineer re individual identity. And how, how does that affect, how's that affected the culture of the prison service? Well, it, so it, if you look at it in historical perspective, it's, um, you know, transformed the management of prisons. So um, the, and, and also this sort of development needs to be seen in its broader social context. So the roots of, the roots of managerialism are, are really in a, a broader social approach, which is often talked about in term, terms of neoliberalism or late modernity. There are different terms used, but in, in popular culture, you'd probably say, you say you were talking about the kind of developments that took place in economics and society during the Thatcher and Reagan era. So the late seventies through the eighties, and in particular that the post-war welfare society was eroded. And instead there was a return to faith in unregulated markets, um, the development of mass consumption uh, and increasing inequality in society. So it wasn't just an economic change. There was sort of social, cultural, legal and political aspects to it as well and you see this process start to change public organizations so as i said the neoliberalism or late modernity is about sort of saying the market is the most important driver and you start to see this come into public management so they start to look to the private sector for ideas about how to have effective public public sector practice so you see things like target setting being introduced, people being recruited from the private sector to work in public sector organizations, including a director general of prisons recruited from the private sector. You start to see the intro introduction of competition. So private prisons were first introduced in the late 1980s. Uh, and you see attempts to try to reduce um, both professional power, so regulate the independence of important players like managers um, and equally, you know, in schools, teachers or in hospitals, medics or in, you know, judges, etc. There's attempts to sort of regulate and control them. Um, and also you see attempts to reduce the power of unions. So you're trying to, you know, trying to shift the power balance. So there are all these changes taking place which shifted how um, organisations operated. And, and in prisons, and the, as this grew, it 
became more intense in the late 1990s. And initially there was quite a lot of resistance from prison managers who saw this as an encroachment on their professional judgment and expertise and their discretion. But over time, not only did that resistance reduce, but when I was carrying, start, you know, when I first was carrying out research on prison managers in 2007, 2008, in fact, they'd, they'd almost come to embody these managerial values. So uh, many would describe the meeting targets was their core role. So they would, so they, they would actually use that term. It's our core, core job is meeting targets, you know, not looking after people, not managing security, not caring for people, not trying to change people, but meeting targets. So there was this sort of shift that had taken place in how, how managers started to see what they were there for and what their task was. So there was quite a profound shift in the, um, in the, the, the culture of management during that time. It sounds quite easy to lose sight of the purpose. People are sounding a little bit like widgets, aren't they in that, in that model? Easy to see how you might lose sight of the person. Yeah. This, I mean, the, right. So this is the, I mean, this is one of the problems with this process is that it, it can feel a bit dehumanizing for the for managers, but then also sometimes they then perpetuate that dehumanization by carrying out the same um, the same practices. So you do. I mean, I've talked about things like um, trying to create identikit corporate citizens. You know, so it's almost like you're trying to shape people into a model rather than giving them choice and agency. There's an attempt to control and direct how people act and behave. Um, and uh and that has an impact so if you're you know focusing too much on targets you can you can lose sight of the impact so in my work i've particularly you know two two phrases are used one is that i've drawn upon a phrase which is about moral blindness so you by focusing on targets you can lose sight of the broader social context so the broader questions of right and wrong and what this institution is here for and whether it's effective or not. You simply just become focused on this target that's right in front of you. So you get this moral blindness, but also it can kind of hide and entrench inequality. So an example of this was, um, I would speak to some black and Asian managers who would say, um, things are much harder for me because I get set the same targets, but actually, um, I get more resistance, you know, because I'm, you know, partly because, because of some deeply entrenched issues around, uh, you know, institutional racism and, and, uh, unconscious bias, et cetera. They find that sometimes they would find it more difficult to be accepted, right? This is their experience that they were talking about. And they would say that because they had the same targets as everyone else, it didn't take account of the, the, the greater difficulty they had in achieving that. And of course, all someone might be looking at is not the context, but just those figures. So it can hide what's really going on behind that. You know, you can imagine that particularly in a circumstance where say that black or Asian manager, because of those challenges, was not meeting some targets or not meeting those targets as well as others and was being judged on on that simply on the numbers not on the struggle that they were having to go through to achieve it so it, it would sometimes these figures would sometimes hide these issues of uh, inequality 
uh, and in some degree in, entrench them as well. So there, there were problems with it. I mean, I, in none of this do I want to suggest that um, that people are robots and they've lost any choice or exercise of agency in this. I mean, there is even the most, even the organizations that exercise the tightest and most total control, they can't control every aspect of everyone's behavior every time. So people do, people, managers did say that they had a degree of choice and discretion in how they operated. But what they were saying was that they were finding it more constrained. That's essentially what they were saying. So. I mean, people haven't turned into robots yet, but that doesn't mean to say there's a sort of, at least in part, an attempt to create them as such. Thank you. That, that's really interesting. Jamie, although, although managerialism has also permeated the NHS, it seems to me as someone who's worked for the NHS in prisons, that in prisons it is much more pervasive. Do you, I mean, I, I don't know whether you have familiarity with other public sector organisations like univer uh, universities, I suppose, strike me as would be similar. I don't know if you noticed that it's more pervasive in prisons and if you have any thoughts on why that might be. Um, I, I mean, I haven't carried out research in other organisations. Um, I mean, they, it, I mean, certainly you, you, I would expect that some organisations like, uh, you know, the judiciary or, you know, doctors, etc., do have a stronger professional independence. And so I imagine that, I, I, you know, I, although I haven't carried out research on it, I think it's probably pretty obvious that they do have, because of that stronger professional independence, they, they are to some degree insulated from it. But I think even they feel that. So judges have the sentence and counsel, which provides some constraint upon their sentence and decisions. Doctors are subject to audits and targets and all kinds of other measures. So um, nowhere is insulated from all of this, but I, I, I would, I, I'm sure you're right that the extent of it varies from organization to organization, depending on a number of factors, in, including the um, strength and power of the professional bodies involved. Thank you, Jamie. You've given a, a very clear, I think, description of uh, the development of managerialism within the, uh, the, uh, the prison. Uh, service structure. In your earlier work, you describe how managerialism took hold and became popular among prison governors until the austerity government from 2010 demanded massive cuts in the uh, prison service. So you seem to be implying that at, at, at that point, something about the managerialism structure uh, began to shake. What was that like? I mean, thinking back to your time as a as a governor, what was that like as a as a as a working manager? And so, just to say a bit about the research that I did about prison managers during what I described as the age of austerity. So, I mean, first of all, I I didn't think austerity was necessarily uh, just you could say it was just a government policy. I mean, I think both all political parties were proposing uh, austerity approaches of reductions in public spending. Um, uh, it, it, it was also an approach which was taken in a number of countries around the world. It was, it was pretty much economic orthodoxy at the time. So I, I wouldn't want to badge any particular government with that. I think it was a, um, it was the orthodoxy of the time. And what, what happened in prisons was, you know, it was a really dramatic change that took place. So there was a 24% reduction 
in funding between 2011 and 2015, although there was subsequently some reinvestment, but that was during that era, that was what happened. Uh, and this was achieved through a number of met methods, um, partly reducing headquarters, partly through the contracting out of maintenance services. So building, building maintenance and construction, um, the closure of small prisons, um, which were seen as inefficient. Uh, there were changes to staff pay and pensions. And there was also a significant organizational change called the benchmarking program, which uh, in essence set, um, a, a, it, had a, it was a defined framework for identifying what resources a prison should have and what services they should provide. So there was a sort of standardization of resources across the country. And that, and through all of those methods, that's how the 24% reduction was achieved. Now, what, what I, in my research on prison managers, what I saw was that there was a shift in how managerialism was affected. So up until then, the way that managerialism had been achieved was through largely through um, performance targets and performance monitoring. So that was the way in which centralized control was operated. Um, and the architecture changed a bit. So it shifted from, from thinking about targets to thinking about change management. So all of those changes that had to take place to achieve the reductions, there, were, there was a whole uh, architecture of monitoring and reporting that took place with that. So there was, a, there was a sort of elasticity about managerialism. It shifted from having one method of achieving it to another. So it shifted from targets to change management. So that was one change, the architecture of managerialism changed. But then the second aspect of managerialism is how it tries to shape and manage people's thinking. So trying to create them as corporate citizens. And this was where I think there was a more significant shift. So, um, People going through this process, I mean, first of all, managers were exposed to quite significant uncertainty and insecurity. So they were having to change roles, change jobs, often kind of, you know, sometimes they had to move from prisons that were closed to other places. Um, some of them felt what I described as, a, as the specter of uselessness, that they sort of felt that they felt out of place in this new world. They felt they were asking to, being asked to do roles which was different from the skills that they'd have or different from what their experience was. Um, and then there was a degree of emotional labor. I mean, that's that by that, I mean that they had to put on a front. So they often felt quite concerned about some of these changes, but felt they had to be the uh, the people promoting and enabling this change, even though they themselves had some doubts about it. So there was this kind of shift uh, where, you know, whereas people had been very committed um, corporate citizens, they'd sort of started to come to really to not, if not entirely uncritically, then broadly believe in targets and the approaches like that. They there was there was a lot more doubt that was creeping in. So this uh, there was reduced legitimacy and something of a sort of weakening of commitment to some of those uh, broader corporate approaches, if you like. Um, I'm not saying that individuals became less committed to 
the people that they worked with or the organization that they do or the job that they do but they they felt a bit more detachment from what they were being asked to do felt a bit little a little bit less like they really believed in it um so that was some of the changes that took place i mean during that time just the, in terms of the the impact on prisons as well documented that the reduction in staffing um and resources also came at a time in which there was uh, the increased available availability, availability of, of psychoactive substances in prisons and that together this seemed to have a, a really profound uh, detrimental impact on safety in prisons so there's a significant increase in violence uh, a number of prisons were struggling to deliver their regimes uh, effectively uh, and although it was different in different prisons, you know, there, it wasn't like all prisons experienced this, different prisons experienced it differently, but broadly there was a rise in violence uh, and difficulty in some prisons in maintaining the, the standards that would be expected. So it was a very difficult time. Thank you. That's, that's really helpful uh, context, uh, Jamie. Moving ahead a bit now, because your more recent paper is on managerialism um, within the context of uh, the pandemic, um, which, I mean, I was talking about it just the other day, and it's extraordinary how easy it is to forget the full intensity of that uh, three plus year, year period. But uh, so the pandemic struck in early 2020. Uh, which of course is round about the same time that Naomi and I started talking about starting you know, a podcast and that wasn't a coincidence but it was an extraordinary time what happened in the prison service then how were decisions made right at that very early moments of the uh, pandemic you know David you're right it's it is really easy to forget what it was like on those first days um you know in some, and you know i i was in london on call um working on a national level and uh, you know i just remember walking through empty streets and just thinking about you know these sort of post-apocalyptic films like 28 days later and things like that and you're thinking oh, I've, I've never seen this before it's like it did feel like a really different world and in prisons the, the context was that we were expecting, we, we, we were expecting it to be almost to be dystopian nightmare. It was the, the forecasts were that if action wasn't taken, uh, there might be something like uh, two, between two and a half and 3,000 people in prison might die as a result of this. Um, that we we thought we'd be working with massively reduced staff groups because they'd be infected, they'd be unavailable for work. Um, and we'd seen, if you remember, as the pandemic started spreading around the world, and it, Italy was the first country in, the, in Europe to really be severely affected by the pandemic. And there, um, their prisons went into meltdown. They had, uh, they had nearly 30 prisons riot there were a dozen people in prison died during those riots and, and over 50 escaped during that. So it was it was absolute meltdown in those prisons. And we didn't really know what we were facing. You know, we haven't been in this situation before. Uh, 
but we, I mean, there's, there's no two ways about it. We were worried about what was going to happen and what we were facing. So the, we worked very closely with public health experts to develop the approach. And in fact, there'd been a lot of work done beforehand. You know, people have been doing pandemic preparation for a long time beforehand. So it's not like it just plucked out of nowhere. There were, um, there were approaches which had been developed. So broadly, the approaches were, first of all, we had to introduce social distancing. Now, in a prison context where you've got lots of people, many with compromised health and vulnerabilities in a small enclosed space, really the only way you can have social distancing is by having people confined to their, their cells, their rooms for quite prolonged periods of time and only coming out in small groups for specific activities. So that was introduced. The second element was uh, an approach called compartmentalization. And this meant that you com create compartments within a prison. So you, you have uh, a separate unit or area for protective isolation. So that's basically those people who are infected or you're, you suspect are infected. So they're kept away from the healthy population, if you like, until they're no longer um, no longer infectious. The second was uh, a group who were who had health vulnerabilities and were shielding, so they had to be kept separate and they had to be protected from uh, exposure to to vulnerability. And then the third group is what we call reverse cohorting. So when when uh, when when people would first arrive into the prison, they would be kept separate for fourteen days to make sure that they didn't have coronavirus um, so they weren't bringing it in and then you were seeding it to the population so you had to create these compartments now you had to real so prisons had to reorganize themselves to have these have units or parts of units which carried out these functions so that was quite a big logistical task to do that and then the third element was there were a, a whole host of risk reduction measures which uh, were brought in and gradually increased over time so by that i'm talking about uh cleaning uh hand washing sanitizing the gradual introduction of ppe face masks uh, etc uh, and then in time and then much later on the vaccine rollout uh to uh to protect people so there was this uh, gradual introduction of uh, risk mitigation measures so that that's broadly what happened in prisons i mean my my research is is about managerialism in prisons so so that's what i've kind of gone in to look at so this you know as i've described in my other work in the normal everyday management of prisons there's this whole architecture of targets audits inspections etc which direct and guide people's work now on day one of the pandemic that disappeared so this had come to shape the lives of prison managers and dictate, you know, dictate and shape how they worked. And, and that just disappeared overnight. It just completely went. So their, um, their working lives really significantly changed. And also we shifted from having, uh, and part of that was there was a shift from having uh, line management arrangements where for example you'd have a group of prisons line line managed by a prison group director or area manager who would oversee a small number of prisons that, that almost disappeared and you had uh, a gold command arrangement so there was a central team in london who would issue 
guidance and instructions to prisons. So that meant that you had uh, much less, you had very clear instructions being given and guidance being given, but there was less structure to the line management. So there's much more discretion for people and how they did that. Um, so there was, there was, there was a kind of strategy and tactic split. So people at a local level felt that they had a lot more um, discretion scope for maneuver within bounds and they felt a lot less constrained through this process so that was one of the experiences of managers at that time is that they they felt a little bit more to some degree they felt a bit more free to operate that's, that's interesting so so you're describing really a kind of increase in direct instruction through this gold management structure but at the same time all those other kind of um, impediments which went along with managerialism, they evaporated for the period. And, and I think you described an increased sense of community of people pulling together um, in, your, in your paper. Some of the, some of the ground floor staff that, that we've spoken to describe things rather differently. They, they feel that that sometimes they were ignored, that management on the on the top floor, using these metaphors, um, operated, uh, but they were out of touch with the ground floor staff who were operating in a sort of pattern of chaotic change being switched from wing to different wing. So, yeah, so, I mean, it's, I mean, so first of all, I think it's important to recognize what my research does, which is I'm, I'm researching prison managers. So I'm looking at their experiences. Other people have carried out research into the experience of um, prison staff, uh, prison officers, uh, and also um, the experience of people in prison. So prisoners, uh, there's people who have carried out research into, and obviously their experience will be different. There's no two ways about that. And so in my research, I'm not seeking to comment about what the experience of prison staff were or what the experience of people in prison, prison are. I'm, I'm simply talking about what the experience of managers was. Uh, and um, I mean, what managers experienced was that, I mean, first of all, you had this sort of disruption of managerialism, that managerialism almost evaporated overnight. Um, but, and, and in its place, what they got was, first of all, they got this recalibration of the relationship between local and national. So they were getting instructions and guidance from a national level, but they felt they had much more scope to be able to um, implement that in a way that worked locally. So they, felt that there was a different relationship between national and local. They, were, they weren't trying to, how they did things was not being directed. They were getting some direction about what they had to do, but they had, they had discretion about how they did it. The, the other aspect was, was what I'd describe as a reinvigoration of a sense of place. So if, when you've got a lot of managerial structures, people's attention is focused nationally because you're thinking about, well, what are the targets that have been set? What's the expectations of the inspectors that or auditors that are coming in you're looking outside of the organization without all of that they're able to sort of look inside the organization and say well what's the needs of this community here and they were also reaching out to their local community so they were doing things like 
helping with the local food bank and you know in this particular prison i was researching or they were raising money for a care home um so that they could buy some it for them to have virtual visits and so they're doing things like that so there's this sort of sense of place and then um, managers felt that they had much more time just to be out and about and talking to people and and thinking about those people aspects of their job um, so they felt that they had more time to do that I mean what you're describing David about you know I've got no doubt that for, for, for an officer being moved from one wing to another and having to do one job and another I'm sure it was incredible you know it would have been incredibly demanding and it it would have felt very messy at times and it was very messy at times and and you know what they did an amazing job um there's no two ways about it i mean like i said there was sort of it was expected that there'd be about three thousand people died you know two years later there there were less than 160 people died from coronavirus and of course each one of those is an individual and personal tragedy but that means that there were some there were over two two and a half thousand people who were saved during that time and we should never forget that people who live and work in prisons did that um, and of course as well you know speaking to managers or my experience is very different from that of, a, of someone in prison who spelt, spent a long time you know sometimes up to two years with a very restricted regime having spent huge amounts of time confined in a small cell and that having very profound effects on their well-being so you know my research isn't talking about that there are other people who've done research which talks about that you know Shad Maruna did a really fantastic uh, co-produced piece of research about the experience of people in prison Neil Hazel did some really great work looking at children in custody uh, and Nick Hardwick as well has done some really interesting work looking at uh, adult adult men in prison so there are lots of people who've, who've done really great work looking at the experience of those people and it's important that their experience is researched and understood and recorded um, I also think it's important that we research record and understand the experience of uh, of prison managers because they're think, thinking feeling people as well they were involved in this and you know I'm interested in their experiences as well Yeah, Jeremy, it's really interesting to hear um, to hear about that disruption managerialism, and I'm not a fan of managerialism at all. Um, but I did wonder whether managerialism has at times facilitated, promoted strategic aims that that might actually be associated at times with more progressive ideas about prison. And I wonder whether that disruption of managerialism actually might have led to um, I suppose you know where there's weaker buy-in at a local level into concepts um, around that might be more progressive whether whether that might have set some of those back in a way so actually I think I'm talking really about services that are provided by for instance psychology um, psychotherapy um, health health staff I, I mean I, um, I wondered whether you had any thoughts on that you might not know from a from a I research absolutely agree basis, with I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not arguing that um, that measurement is not important. Um, measurement is not the same as managerialism. So managerialism is when you start overusing measurement and it becomes the be all and end all. And you try to manufacture a workforce who see it as the be all and end all. So measurement is 
a worthwhile activity. I mean, it's it's worth knowing. You know, I just quoted some figures about what how many people were expected to have died during the pandemic and how many did. I mean, I think that's a worthwhile thing to know. Um, but you know, it's not like people were sitting with spreadsheets and that that you know the most important thing was the outcome on the spreadsheet the most important thing to the people to the managers that i was researching was the people there in front of them and um you know and they they weren't looking at numbers and spreadsheets they were they were dealing with people and so whilst measurement's important measurement is important and i'm not criticizing measurement i think proportionate measurement is an important part of accountability as you say it can direct actions in appropriate ways um i, I suppose what i'm arguing is that when you overuse it and when you don't have the right level of professional judgment and discretion and agency you it, it, it starts having perverse effects yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't disagree with you, and I wasn't arguing for more for, for more measurement. But certainly, as you, as, I think you summed it up nicely there, where you spoke about that sometimes directing behaviour and maybe removing that. I'm not. I'm not sure measurement's the right way to direct the behaviour, but you know, in terms of thinking about more progressive um, cultures, whether there might have been something that got lost in in that process. But thank you. Yeah, so um, thinking about your paper again, uh, Jamie, because you observe in, in that paper that um, as the prison regime began to return to normal post pandemic, there was a thought going around that noticed the, the reduction of violence, you know, not surprisingly, when people were locked up for 22 hours a day, there was less uh, opportunity to get involved with all kinds of activities which could lead to to violence and and that resonated I think to some extent to the thinking that some prisoners entertained that uh, that uh, they thought really that their prison staff wanted to have them locked up all the time what are your thoughts about that are there other ways of reducing violence so I, I mean absolutely absolutely so just as a bit of um, sort of context around some of that. So as the uh, pandemic, the, the first wave of the pandemic kind of came and then uh, and then we had the, which was in the sort of spring, early summer of uh, 2020. And then there was a second wave in the winter. And when there was a kind of receding of the pandemic, then um, what we started to see was it's in some places you start to see an increase in the regime activity um but during that first wave of the pandemic there'd been a lockdown in the community and there was a lockdown in prisons and so it felt like everyone was in the same boat so people felt that they were there was something much bigger than the prison uh and they almost felt like we were all in something together but then as there was a you know, things started to be unlocked in the community during that summer and people weren't seeing a rapid return to full regimes in prisons. Um, then people started to feel differently about it. And you can understand that. And of course, there was a lot of work to try to explain about the vulnerabilities, the potential for explosive outbreaks, their health risks, uh, which meant that it had to go more slowly. 
and of course people could understand that to a degree and and i think lived with it then we had the the next lockdown in the winter of 2020-21 and then in the next summer as things started to improve in the community and again it was sort of slow in prisons and, and by that point i think people were starting to get people in prison were often trying to start and getting very weary of it and feeling there was a difference between what was happening in the community and in in prison uh, and you know and just on a human level i can understand that but there were also very good public health reasons why that was being taken and all of this was being guided by public health advice but i can also understand that when you're there in a prison you're in a you know you're in a cell you're locked up for a long period of time that you might start looking for other answers that there's some sort of conspiracy or or, or decision that's been made which is for other reasons so i, I you know I, I do understand all of that um i mean what what we what i saw in terms of managers was that during this time um as the the pandemic started to kind of recede is that managerial measures started to return so they were inspections were reintroduced independent monitoring boards started to return audits started again then targets started to be reintroduced so that by april 2022 the whole infrastructure was back in place again and i've described that as a process of managerial clawback that you know managerialism has a way of reimposing itself uh, and that that was essentially what happened and people saw this as a return to normality but i do think there were a couple of areas in which there was a it seemed to be acknowledged locally and nationally that managerialism couldn't provide the answers and one of them was in regime activity so um with regime activity there was much more scope for local decision making about what activity would be provided for the people in that prison um and the the speed and pace of the unlock so um and that was so that people could make judgments based upon a variety of factors including um you know the availability of staff uh safety uh public health there were a whole load of factors which they had to consider in that process and there and you know, local managers were asked to be much more active in that decision-making process. So there was a sense in which centralized management decisions were no longer seen as the answer and there was a more localized approach. Um, but I think you're essentially, you're asking local managers to make very difficult, complex decisions, um, which perhaps they haven't been used to making in the past. And, that, uh, and I think over time, I would, you know, if you give, managers the scope to be making more local decisions like that and you give them the training the support the development in order to be do that i think that they do have an appetite for doing that and many have um, are, are very skillful people who who can make those decisions effectively and what i'd say is the prison i was researching they were being very imaginative about that they were operating something called a half and half regime so they had um this was during uh late 2021 so they would have um half of the uh people in the prison would go to work or education in the morning whilst the other half stayed on the wing got access to exercise showers etc did all what they call domestic work 
and then in the afternoon it reversed so the other half went to work and, and so actually that meant people were getting a reasonable regime it could be run with more social distancing for public health reasons um, it felt safe and ordered uh, and so it was doing a you know that was that was an example of where local managers were given discretion and they exercised it in a way which seemed responsible um, and thoughtful. So is, is there a, a review taking place to look at the kind of changes that you described really over that span of, I don't know, five or six years to, to see if there might be developments in policy and practice? So the prison's white paper uh, in 2021 talked about um, earn, earn trust and uh, the, the, the best performing prison managers being given more choice and discretion in the way that they operated. So certainly that's come into the conversation more. Um, and similarly, the, there's, there's some ch changes currently taking place to bring together prisons and probation, a project known as 1HMPPS. So HMPPSP and Her Majesty's Prison and Probation Service. And part of that is that there will be regional directors. And, and, and some of that is about pushing some strategic decision-making to a more local level. So it does seem like some of that reinvigoration of local decision-making is starting to come into organizational practice. Thank you. It's gonna take us all a little while to learn to say His Majesty's this and that, isn't it? <laughs> oh, did I say Her Majesty's? 27 no. years of saying Her Majesty. <laughs> His Majesty. So Jamie, over, over the years, you've done an impressive job of describing prisons and criminal justice issues as an insider. Are there any limitations to how critical you can be from that position? And if so, how do you, how do you manage to juggle the, the needs for closeness, but also to be critical at the same time? So it's a really interesting question, Naomi. It's a sort of interesting methodological question, but it's, I suppose it's all, also quite an interesting personal question as well. So methodologically, um, I mean, the research method that I use is, is ethnography. So that's about um, observation of a particular culture in order to uh, understand it in a sort of in-depth and rich way. So the, the origins of that, were were in um i suppose it was in uh you know researchers from colonial powers going out into remote parts of the empire to study uh you know indigenous populations so it's, it's almost like you have an outsider who's trying to get close trying to get a degree of intimacy and the approach i take is very different i mean it's sometimes described as insider ethnography uh, and essentially what you're trying to do is you're you're inside and you're trying to get enough distance in order to be able to look at a world you're part of uh, in a more detached and critical way. So I suppose the classic ethnographer and the insider ethnographer are trying to get to the same position, you know, enough intimacy to understand, but enough distance to be to have a critical perspective. Um, but they're just getting there from different points. Um, I mean, one of the questions that kind of gets asked, almost gets assumed is if you're an insider, you, you, you've got some kind of 
inbuilt bias or, um, or or judgment. And of course, one of the things that ethnography teaches you is to is what's called reflexivity. So you're constantly thinking about how your own experiences and judgments are shaping what you're seeing and what you're recording. So that is a sort of in-depth, that's a part of ethnographic processes. And it's some, but I think there's an assumption sometimes that the classic ethnographer is, is like a blank slate. And of course they're not. I mean, I described the classic ethnographer as being, you know, from a, you know, a, a colonial power and it, you know, university in a colonial power who goes to a remote part of the empire to observe uh, an indigenous population. So first of all, they're from a university, they're from a privileged background, right? They, um, they're, uh, they're from um, a colonial power going to uh, part of a, uh, you know, part, part of the empire. So again, there's a power relationship and probably a racial and ethnic relationship as well. And dare I say, there will also be a gender element there because they were almost inevitably men when they were in the sort of classic ethnography phase so i think every research every ethnographic researcher is bringing baggage with them so the job of a ethnographer is to understand what baggage they're bringing and understand how that is shaping their own way of being and seeing and that's part of the methodology um the other thing that I would sort of say is that there's been a movement in research to that rather than research being something that an outsider comes in and does, that there's a movement towards participation or co-production or lived experience and this being important in research. Uh, and certainly you hear in terms of uh, people in prison, you hear, the, you hear the term lived experience. And I suppose to some degree, I didn't. I mean, I say this a little bit flippantly, but to some degree, I'm a lived experience researcher because I'm someone who's got lived experience of being a manager who's carrying out research of, of prison management. I mean, of, of course, I understand they're not the same. You know, someone who's been in prison, researching prisons is not the same as the, the power dynamic is different. I get that. Um, but what I am saying is that the whole process of um, people who've been part of a culture participating in research is much more widely understood and appreciated these days. Um, but there is a discipline to it. I mean, you can't just rock up and give your opinions or your anecdotes. It's got to be really em empirically grounded. There's a, there's a proper discipline to it. And there are techniques that you can use. Like I always research places where I haven't worked, you know, when I'm researching managers, um, so that I've got a bit of unfamiliarity um, I, um, I, I think about things like, um, you know, peer supervision and stuff like that to try and help me with reflexivity. Um, I think about how I present myself when I go in. So I used to sort of think about, I used to think about clothing quite a lot when I went into prisons because, you know, as a prison manager, like, I mean, clothing's really important in prisons, right? You've got prison officers wear uniforms, um, People in prison used to wear prison clothing at some point. Uh, when, when prison governors or prison managers are sometimes referred to as suits and becoming a governor is getting your suit. So these things are really important. Um, so the first time I was researching prison managers, I spent ages just sort of thinking, oh, well, what should I wear? You know, eventually going in and sort of trying to get a sort of smart, casual look. 
So you, you try to think, well, I'm trying to convey something to the people I'm researching about who I am and why I'm here. So you, to some degree, you're trying to manufacture that distance, but I'm also communicating something to myself that, you know, I'm, I'm here for a different, I'm not here as the manager now, I'm here as something else. So there are ways in which you try and manufacture it. Um, the, the, I suppose the, the more personal question that maybe you're alluding to Naomi is that, you know, is it a conflict, almost a conflict to have a, to be a researcher and a practitioner, you know, does it inhibit your career and stuff like that? You know, so I'm, never became a researcher because I thought it would benefit my career. I was pretty sure that it wouldn't. Um, and I've been borne out by that. Um, so, you know, I knew I was doing something which, you know, and it had quite a profound effect on me doing research. So, um, you know, I think that when you go into your own organization and you're trying to look at it from a broader lens, it's hard to stop doing that when you go back and start doing your job, you know, so you end up, so sometimes I almost end up be, feeling a little bit semi-detached um, because I kind of, you know, I can sort of see what's being done and, and how it's been done and how it fits into a bigger picture. So um, I'd say that doing the research did, did affect me as a person and a professional um, but not necessarily in ways that were advantageous to me career-wise. Thank you. I, th I mean, that was a really thoughtful answer. And you can hear kind of like your sense of, I suppose, passion and commitment being more important than thinking about career, career advancement, because I can, I think perhaps the prison service might be a little bit more controlling about what information is, it, what, how much criticism it can bear compared to to other places but i wondered whether I mean, there was what, what i would say Sorry. naomi what i would mm -hmm. say is that the you know hmpps has, has been an you know an absolutely fantastic employer i mean i should say that you know all of this research that i do gets approved you know gets submitted for assessment it gets approved by hmpps they facilitate it they enable it um you know they've funded me through educational opportunities um so i you know i I've got, I've never got any complaints about HMPPS as an employer, you know, they've been absolutely wonderful. You know, I sometimes have a complicated relationship with the institution of prisons, the social institution of prisons, but I don't have a complicated relationship with my colleagues or HMPPS as an employer who I think have been great. No, it sounds like they really appreciate the work that you're doing because you have been doing it for quite a, for quite a a while but I, I wondered whether there's any as you were as you were talking before about trying to get that balance of intimacy and distance and I wondered whether there was any argument for kind of cleansing your palate so I suppose the nearest metaphor I can think of is you know like when you smell perfume they give you coffee to smell in between so that actually each aroma is a fresh you're coming to it fresh and I wondered whether going and spending two weeks working in a totally different sector would give you a different perspective going back into prisons for observation, you know, kind of resetting, resetting your perspective. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, that's right. And I suppose to some degree I'm doing that professionally because I've, um, I'm currently on a secondment in the Youth Justice Board. So I've come out of prisons for a, a period of time. Uh, so, you know, to get some experience 
in another part of the uh, criminal justice system, a different part of the criminal justice system and a different organization, and a different role. Uh, and I think you're right, that can be very refreshing. And I, I would also say that, you know, carrying out research has that function as well, that, um, you know, it, it, I, you know, I mean, people, people have interests and hobbies, don't they? So I always sort of say, well, some people play golf or go fishing and I carry out research that no one ever reads. So um, I guess we've all got our interests. <laughs> Thank you. I'm conscious of the time, David, so I wonder if, if we should move to the last question. Sure, sure, yeah. Well, you may think you've just answered the final question, Jamie, but I'm going to come back at you about that because you've been working in really quite a challenging uh, setting, you know, in positions that carry not just a burden of responsibility, but within settings that characteristically have a quite a heavy sort of atmosphere. So how do you keep yourself fresh and emotionally healthy? So I'm very fortunate in many ways. I um, have a very supportive family and um, I, uh, I've also been fortunate to work with some fantastic and supportive colleagues during my time. Um, I mean, I, I live a I live a healthy lifestyle, so uh, I do a lot of exercise. I'm vegan. I'm teetotal. I don't smoke, so um, I'm incredibly boring. So that's one way in which I sort of stay healthy. I think I've all also like doing things like research, but also work like having worked in like a therapeutic setting as well. I think a lot of that helps to to it's helped to give me a sort of sense of perspective, which I think is really good. And, and it means that I um, can manage myself and circumstances that I come, that I, that I'm faced with better by just trying to keep a longer term perspective on things rather than get caught too much in difficult situations. Um, and I think the other thing is that, you know, there have been times when, you know, I've found myself being affected by things. Um, I mean, like you say, David, if you work in prisons, you deal with, you do deal with some really difficult situations. Um, you know, and that, that can be all the kind of stuff that you get in any workplace with, you know, difficult relationships or frustrations about things that are happening. But also in, in prisons, you, you have to make decisions which really profoundly affect people's lives. Um, you do deal with life and death um this stuff's really difficult and there's there's a, a a couple of times when i have found myself quite affected by things now and i've been willing to sort of seek whether it's counseling or coaching or whatever i think might help so i've been willing to do that and i think that's uh that's quite important to be able to recognize that and um seek that help when it's needed Thank you. You're, well, you're anything but boring, Jamie, and I think that's been a brilliant uh, conversation about your work and about uh, ethnography. Many thanks. Great. Yeah, well, thank, thank you, you very much. Thank you.